Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. The musical Falsettos was originally produced in New York in April 1992 and ran for nearly 500 performances. The show, which is one of the earliest musicals to deal with coming out of the closet and with AIDS, was revived on Broadway in 2016, and it's that production which is now on tour in the Bay Area at the Golden Gate Theater through April 14th. I had a chance to speak with the creators of Falsettos, director James Lapine and composer-lyricist William Finn, about the show, about this production, and a little bit about their other work. James Lapine is one of Broadway's most successful directors, and has worked with Stephen Sondheim on such shows as Sunday in the Park with George, Into the Woods, and Sondheim on Sondheim. William Finn is not only known for falsettos, but for the very popular, frequently produced show, the 25th annual Putnam County Spelling Bee. William Finn, falsettos, is the second and third part of a triptych of plays. The first part was called In Trousers. Let's go back what prompted you to begin the play in trousers and write about Marvin and his women? And at that point, was March of the Falsettos, which is act one of Falsettos, was that in the back of your mind? I was calling myself a writer and not writing. And so I called up my three friends, Mary Test, Allison Frazier, and Kay Pesek. And I said, come over, I'll buy some chicken wings and you'll cook it and I'll write some stuff and then we'll sing. And that's how Intraza started. We, we did some shows in my apartment. I borrowed chairs from the temple across the street and we, we did these shows. And Playwrights Horizons asked if, if I could be the, their first composer. They were going to do for composers and lyricists what they had done for playwrights. You know, I teach at NYU, and I tell my students all the time, they need a calling card when they come out of school. And in trousers was my calling card. It was saying to the world, this is what I do, saying to other people, this is what I do, other composers who I was trying to impress, this is what I do, um, and I hope you'll like it. The story of Marvin himself, how did you, you decide to write it? Because at that point, there were virtually no plays out there, very little out there about gay life. This is the late 70s. I'm not sure. I, I, I was trying to make a name for myself. James Lapine, how did you get involved in March of the Falsettos? And at that point, was the idea that the first play in Trousers would be about Marvin leaving his wife and the second play about his boyfriend, was that always there? Well, I met Bill through Playwrights Horizons, and I actually designed the album cover of In Trousers, though I didn't see the show, I'm embarrassed to say. (laughs) And then we were introduced, and Andre Bishop, who ran Playwrights Horizons, said, I think you two should work together. And Bill had, how many songs did you have? You had four Jews in a room bitching. I had like six songs, or the beginning of six songs. 
and there was no script, as I recall. There was just there these... was no story. It was back and forth. There was what it wasn't good. James Lapine put it in, in some order. What we did then was uh, Andre gave us a room and said, "Here, go off for four weeks and make a musical." And um, I looked at the songs Bill had and the characters he had, and then we. I mean, the general scheme of a married guy leaving his wife for another guy was the general story. And I think maybe if I had a big contribution at all, it was in introducing the character of the boy, Jason, because I felt that we needed to have an onlooker, basically, of the show. And then we got in a room and we developed a show. James right said, on I work well with children. And I said, could it be Marvin's son? He said, I, I, I don't care. I, I just work well with children. And, uh, and so he, he became the center of the show. That becomes clear in Act Two in Falsetto Land. Well, that's because his bar mitzvah, I think, became the, you know, we wrote yeah, Falsetto Land 10 years later. So it was interesting writing a show that's chronologically takes place two years later from the first act, but you're actually writing it from the wisdom of 10 years later. So it was an interesting experience, and we both think felt that we needed and wanted to do something that was topical. You know, when we wrote it, we were in the middle of the AIDS crisis, but of course these characters were just at the beginning. We said to one another, I wonder what these characters would be doing under these circumstances. So that... It, Pretty much wrote itself pretty quickly. Well, when we wrote March Falsetto's AIDS was was not on the horizon at all. In in Falsetto Land we felt we had to deal with it in some way. And you know, it's such a mammoth subject and you feel you're gonna trivialize it, so I was so frightened to do it. What was great about it was it was never mentioned. It was just the beginning of it, you know. The unnamed illness that could have been any illness, frankly, uh, until we learned that it how it was spread. So I think the show succeeds because it's not about AIDS per se. It's about a family and complicated people leading complicated lives whose, whose lives are put in a different perspective when they're faced with some catastrophe such as this. And I think that uh, is what the strength of the show is. It it has a lot of humor, and it touches on a lot of human behavior, but it also makes an audience ask itself, how would they react? One of the interesting elements of falsettos as a two-act um, musical is that there can't be any foreshadowing in Act One because, as Bill Finn says, you got none of us knew that AIDS was on the horizon, and then suddenly it's there, which... It's kind of an interesting way to look at it because that's how we saw it at the time. Uh, when you were working 10 years later, at that particular time, did you look back and go back to Act 1 and see if you would change anything or did you say not at all? I don't think we... No, not at all. Short answer. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think... That, the only thing we ended up adding was breaking down in Act 1 when the two came together. Because we, we premiered that in L.A., actually, when we were at the Doolittle Theater um, and March the Falsettos was there. And that was the first time March the Falsettos on Breaking Down was done. You know, what's interesting, though, to think about is that when people first saw March the Falsettos, it stood on its own, the first act with 
When people saw it, when we did it 10 years later as two acts, people were in the midst of living it. And I think what's interesting now in seeing it is it's a little piece of history and people who are older like us will remember it and younger people don't know about it. And I think we feel it's important to remind people of that piece of history and to remind the people who even lived through it that this was a time period that was unique in our culture and worthy of commemorating. And what's so amazing is that my students have no idea of it. Really? The students I have, yeah, they have no idea. Or they, like, I have an assistant who I took to the normal heart and at intermission. She said, well, I know about AIDS, but was it like this? I mean, you know, they don't really have a sense of what it really was like. Out here on the West Coast, I would go to the Castro and late 70s, I'd see the same people. And then you go a few years later, they're all gone. Everybody was gone. It just swept through the community in a way that I guess people today don't understand, which brings up the idea of returning to the, to the scene of falsettos in 2016. How did that come about? I happened to be at a benefit thing at the public theater and was seated next to Jordan Roth, who's a producer and theater owner, and making small talk as one. I'd never met him, and I just said, what's on your bucket list? Because he had just taken over the theaters, and I was curious what he wanted to do, and he he said falsettos, and I just said, okay, sounds really good. <laughs> at that point, you were contacted, William Finn, and that meant going back to it or not? You know, I, I've been there for 10 or 15, however long, 25 years, listening to it, hating some parts of it. And I, I thought, well, this is a chance I can fix it. I can make it so that I, I, I don't dislike it. So um, that was my chance to get it right. What did you do? What were the changes? You know, you have to listen to the first, second time. I think you're talking mostly about lyrics. No, I'm talking about lyrics. And it was always basically sung through. Was there any thought to having more talk in it at any point? No. I, I, had a, uh, I went to Williams College, and I had a professor there who said, you know, when they sing very good, when they talk very bad. And I just was a lousy playwright. So when I was trying to write it myself, they just sang everything because I'd learned to go with my strengths. Well, that meant that as a director, James Lapine, you have to take a series of songs and cohere it into almost like an opera, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it wasn't, um, it was fun. It wasn't difficult. The songs are so rich and there's great energy. And what you do as a director is fill them out with narrative that is really based in staging. So for me, my background is in visual things, you know, I didn't start out in the theater, so it was kind of perfect because it's the era of MTV. It was and just he staged the heck out of it. I mean, he what he did was unbelievable. Well, it was fun because you could you, you don't have to things don't have to always be written to be understood. You can develop relationships and story by action and not necessarily with words. So I think it was a good match, the two of us. Well, where does the choreography then come in? Well, originally I did the choreography, which is pretty hilarious because I could bear, I had never even directed a musical and there I was doing the staging too. And I would get like uh, our orchestrator, Michael Starobin and people after work and we'd drink some beer and smoke some dope and 
my inspiration was the Three Stooges, so it was really <laughs> pretty simplistic. Now we have Spencer Liff, who's a really brilliant choreographer, and he's brought a whole other kind of energy to the And it was really show. fun to see uh, Spencer choreograph these, because he made numbers. Is the version that we're seeing here at the Golden Gate, is that basically the PBS version that aired? Uh, yes. Yes, it is. It's the Different Broadway. actors. <laughs> well, yeah. But it's the Broadway version, yes. Did you do the directing, the television directing? Well, I sat with the technical director and did it, yeah. You know, because they shoot those things very quickly and you want to help the technical people know where to put the camera. But William Finn, during that process, are you involved at all? I was in the van, is all I can say. I didn't... I, I was contributing not at all, saying maybe that that's the the wrong lyric, but that's all. I was commenting. When you shoot those things for television, it is it is so fast paced that you just there really is no much chance to do much more than just try and capture a live performance. I want to get a little bit deeper into the themes of this show because underneath it all, there's a lot going on. It's about family and it's about coming out. It's also about Marvin becoming a man. I, I, I think if, if I had to describe the show, it would be Marvin becomes a man and his son's the one who gets bar mitzvah, but Marvin's the one who becomes a man. So they both become it struck me that the son is this becomes the central character of Act Two of False Land. He's kind of the center of the show. Everything revolves around him, but uh, Marvin's still the lead. You know, Marvin is our narrator. He's the one that comes out at the beginning and talks to us and does the same in Act Two. But his basic dilemma is the kind of father he is, and as Bill said, the kind of man he is. Was that a formative idea, William Finn, that this was the duel becoming a man yes. when you're working on it? That's what I was working on. Even during in trousers, that's what I was working on. But on the other hand, you know, I look at it and I see an entire community affected because of the AIDS crisis as well. Right. It's all combined. It's all intertwined. Well, I think... It's a crisis that makes everybody grow up. It puts everything in a different perspective, and I think yeah. that's what's interesting about it. To me, it's less about him becoming a man and more about all of these characters really finding their own identity and, and their own maturity. William Finn, I'd like to ask a couple of questions. What prompted you to start writing Putnam Spelling Bee? Uh, Wendy Wasserstein, our dear friend, suggested... Her weekend nanny was in the original company when they did Down in the Village without any music, and Wendy went to see it, and they had filmed, they'd filmed a version of it. And for the first time, you know, I lived my life in the fog, and I had one moment of clarity, and that was the Putnam County spelling room. And A New Brain also came out of your own illness, which yes. is an extraordinary show as well. As you came to be able to work again, was that in the forefront of your mind? No, but every time James Lapine would come to the hospital, he'd say, I hope you're taking notes. I'd say, what the fuck are you talking about? I'm dying. You take the notes. <laughs> and so um, when what I had was not an inoperable tumor, which I was told, but um, a thing called an AVM, arterial venous malformation or something like that, 
I, I started thinking about it. And when I, when I came out, I just had to sit at the piano and there'd be songs. My hands would like play automatically. It was, it was magic. And you were involved from the start on New Brain. I didn't direct it, um, but I did help a little bit with the story. You, and did, then I directed it encores, which was really fun when we got to go was back. Brilliant, to brilliant. Meanwhile, at your end, James Lapine, after Falsettos, in March of the Falsettos, uh, how did you meet Sondheim? Uh, I was introduced to him by a couple of producers. I had actually an uh, idea for a musical that they were going to develop, and they introduced me to him because they thought he would be a good collaborator. Did that turn into Sunday in the Park? Well, that became something else. He didn't want to do what I had envisioned, and uh, we chatted, and it became Sunday in the Park, yeah, an idea that we developed. Was that ever just a one act that they added the second act, or was, or was Sondheim always in t intent on the second act? We were both intent on the second act. Steve doesn't write the shows. He writes the music <laughs> and the lyrics. No, seriously, he, he's very much a collaborator in that way. Bill and I work very differently together. We're both kind of, um, I don't know, we just, it's a completely different way of working when I work with him than when I work with Steve. Can you elaborate? Well, for instance, Sondheim didn't write any music on Sunday in the Park till the whole first act was written, uh, whereas we jumped in kind of in the middle of something unwritten and work on our feet much more. So the entire first act, including the final song, Sunday, that was all charted out before he actually wrote the song. It was written as a one. It could have been a play. It was yeah. a one-act play, yeah. But at that point, you already knew it was coming even before he wrote the song. You you knew that it would end with people standing at the at the. Uh, oh, it's painting. a long time ago. Um, I knew that we would recreate the painting at the end of the first act. And after that, you worked with him on Into the Woods as well. And I guess that was just a collaboration coming out of fairy tales. Yeah. It was kind of like, what do you want to write? What do I want to write? And I, I think I won on that one, except I wanted to write a fairy tale, and I set out to write a fairy tale and discovered it was really hard because fairy tales are so short, conventionally very short. So that's when the idea of putting a bunch of fairy tales characters together came about. Well, he talked a lot about Bettelheim. Did that play a role? or No. Not at all? <laughs> well, a little bit. Bettelheim pointed to fairy tales as being something that gave people hope because they had happy endings, you know, and fairy tales are really based on oral stories that were told around the fire. But when you look at the fairy tales, they're, I think they're kind of, Bettelheim thought it was a good thing. I didn't personally, when I thought about it, know that it was good to teach children that everything is going to turn out fine and be a happy ending because if you're, you know, a peasant in the 16th century, okay. But, you know, in the 20th, 21st century, I'm not sure that's the message we should be imparting. It's interesting you mentioned that because getting back to falsettos, it can end in a certain way, hopefully, but of course it can't end in another way, hopefully. Well, I think the reality of what happens in falsettos is, is in a sense, sort of what happens in Into the Woods as well. I mean that death is a part of our uh, is part of living, and to somehow not take that into account and appreciate the finality and 
the time we have here is, you know, it's an important theme. I, th- I don't think it negates the joy of being alive either, but I think it's a, it's, it's part of being alive is also knowing that you're not always going to be alive. William Finn, when you look at falsettos now, what do you want people to take away from it? Whatever they take away is valid. I, I'm in no position to tell them what they should be taking away. I think that's absolutely right. You don't write a show with a message. You know, I think good good theater speaks to the time that it, it's presented in, and, and it has to have a fluidity to it that people bring whatever's going on in their life to the experience of what's going on on stage and relate it in their own personal way. But at the same time, I mean, when you talk about revivals, My Fair Lady, the Rodgers and Hammerstein canon, there's usually an attempt by directors to kind of make it more valid or more contemporary. It didn't seem as if that's what you were doing with uh, falsettos, unless I missed something. No, no. My Fair Lady, they changed it because... He was abusive, and I'm not sure they helped the show. I agree. I mean, they should have just put the damn show on Absolutely. the way it was written. I mean, and it's so moving, and, and I wasn't moved by this. And you look at a show like Carousel, which is, you know. So brilliant. And but it's also dark. Dark and sexist, and people die, and, uh, you know, I think. And there are, there are bad guys. There are bad guys. <laughs> there are. <laughs> uh, one final question, James Lapine. You may not know the answer to this. What's the story of, of Sondheim's Bunuel musical? Is that happening? What do we know? I have no idea. Really? Absolutely no idea. Sorry. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not being evasive. I really don't talk to him about it, and I haven't asked him, and I have no idea where they are in their process. Uh, William Finn, are you working on anything right now? I'm working on a song cycle with Deborah Abramson. Does it have a name? Aging is what it's called now. And James Lapine, uh, you directed a few movies way back. You directing any more movies? What's on your uh, agenda? I have no movies. I'm uh, working on a new musical about LSD in the 1950s. And who who are the collaborators? Uh, Tom Kitt is writing the music, and Michael Corey is doing the lyrics. Right. If they ever get around to doing their work. What was that again? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> This revival of falsettos is at the Golden Gate Theater in San Francisco through April 14th. For more information, you can go to shnsf.com. The Broadway production was filmed, and that recording can be seen by subscription through the Broadway HD and PBS websites. Broadway HD also has a seven-day free trial period. Still, though, nothing beats live theater if you can afford it. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>